Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. My husband's missing, listening to it, saying they'd be crazy because she's such a little cutie. I've gone through at the home representative that I'm trying to the arms, so they can't get the answers. How many people are going to get the answers? They know who hard I work and to get nothing at the end of it is very, very hard. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion mine with PJ Coogan. Oh, look at that weather out there. Isn't this the most perfect, perfect Friday? Mmm. I was sitting out in the garden. Oh, by the way, Peach is sitting in his garden as I speak. He sent me a lovely text this morning and uh, I was doing the same around about six o'clock. Just absolutely beautiful. The little pleasures in life that we tend to skip along and miss and we just tend not to see them anymore. Please, let's get back to doing simple things again like that. You know, listening to the birds, looking at the blue skies, looking at the sun coming up, smelling the hydrangeas. Uh, it's just beautiful. Having a cup of coffee and just savouring it and thinking I have the whole world to myself. Well, maybe not the world. The back garden would do me fine. But um, please get out and enjoy the sun today. Uh, we've become completely consumed by being busy, by doing, and we've forgotten the beauty of being. I was reading this during the week. Um, the Power of One, Eckhart Tolle. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant spiritual guy very very uplifting reading a lot of his stuff in hospital and it just brought me right back to the importance of being not doing being so do a little bit of that at the weekend if you can i hope to be doing lots of it and uh, on the traffic front as i mentioned yesterday coming in along the link today the old uh, lane swerving and lane weaving very very dangerous stuff because once you lose control of your car you can't get it back uh, not unless you've been trained um, in the art of high-speed driving, which, of course, is restricted to the Gardaí only. But uh, obviously a lot of people chancing it again this morning coming along the link. The link, by its very nature, is very narrow on both sides, so there's not much room to manoeuvre. And if you lose control of your car, you're finished, OK? Your bank holiday's gone, and you'll be joining those wonderful people up in CUH. If they can get you bed, that'll be a bonus. Or worse still, as I say, the coolest place you don't want to be this weekend is a hospital mortuary, okay? It's just worth keeping in mind. Now, Philip Schofield is all over the front pages of all of practically most of the newspapers again this morning. And I'm looking at the Sun newspaper and uh, his recent interviews with the BBC and the Sun are pretty explosive stuff. Certainly the one with the BBC for me was, uh, I had to listen to it again a couple of times. Uh, just, by the way, our text and WhatsApp number 083-396-9696, 083-396-9696. This is the big hot story at the moment. And listen to this. The following is an extract from his interview yesterday with Sun journalist Clemmy Moody. 
He worked at the show for a bit. We became mates. And then one day, something happened that just changed it. Um, and that's the moment, you know, that's the moment you, I look back on. There'd be accusations that you grooved him? I was going to ask the question. I did not. I did not. Yeah. I mean, there are accusations of all sorts of things. Yeah. I know, I, 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 I absolutely know. There is no question I did a bad thing. Mm. Unprofessional. First time. I know, I know I did that. Yeah. And there's no excuse. I don't have an excuse. I won't put forward an excuse. The last time we had a conversation was when I texted Holly and said, don't reply. This is after the statement last week. Don't reply. You're probably not allowed to. But I am deeply, deeply sorry that I lied to you. Um, and I am. It was the one secret in our sanctuary that was never mentioned. My biggest regret is getting into a relationship at work. To whom do you owe your biggest apology? Everybody. Everybody. To every single person, I am deeply sorry. And I, I apologise to him because I should have known better. Well, his voice is instantly recognisable, whether we will hear it for much longer, I'm not too sure whether we'll see him again is very, very questionable. That, of course, is Philip Schofield, disgraced broadcaster. And an extract from his interview yesterday with Sun journalist, the Sun newspaper journalist, Clemmy Moody. Now, we will have more audio across the morning of his explosive BBC interview. You think that was revelatory? Well, wait till you hear some of the stuff coming from the BBC interview. He strikes me as a man who's He's he's torn apart um, and he's doing a lot of soul searching at the moment. He's obviously trying to disprove rumours that are rife that obviously can't be discussed because there's no proof behind them whatsoever. And, you know, as you can understand, we have to be careful here what we say. But clearly what's there, um, what has been shown to have happened, has destroyed his career and whether there will be further fallout in relation to Holly and her place on the old couch there uh, on the This Morning programme and other individuals behind the scenes, behind this enormous ITV production. You have to remember that the amount of money this production brings in every single morning is probably along the scale of what the national broadcaster here would bring in across its entire schedule, across all of its channels. So what This Morning brings in per year is extraordinary. So it has so many ramifications and the the knock-on effects here are, as they call it, exponential. It's like a, a, a stone being thrown into the water. The ripples just keep on going and going and going. So as I say, and PJ mentioned it and uh, uh, talked about it earlier in the week, if you would like to text or WhatsApp, if you have any comments, any feelings about it, he's a very popular guy. It's a hugely watched program here, of course, uh, Virgin 
media shows it here on Irish television. We'd like to hear what you think. 0833 96 96 96. 0833 96 96 96. Now, it's Gareth O'Callaghan for PJ. And we'll be here with you through till 12 o'clock today. Give us a shout. Let us know what you're up to, what you're about and where you're going. If you're away for the weekend, maybe you're already in your mobile home or you're at the camping site and you're just sitting out in this beautiful sunshine. Uh, let us know where you are and we'll say hello to you. And if you've some sort of festival or get together on this weekend, let us know the details as well. So a story to give us all that Friday feel. Some weeks back, uh, a little puppy called Buddy was rescued from the River Lee by Cork City Fire Service. He's something of a celebrity now around Cork, and in recent days, some life-changing news has come his way. Sharon Ann Rogers is on the line. Hi, Sharon. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. This is very close to my heart because we have a beautiful little rescue dog called Finn, who, for all the wrong reasons, also became a bit of a celebrity last Halloween. Tell me about Buddy. He's a beautiful little Yorkie. He's small. He's very timid. Um, he's a character. He's his own little character. Uh, he's very good. I came, he, as you know, he was found. Uh, he was rescued by the Cox City Fire Brigade. He was very lucky um, to be rescued. They're fantastic. They did a fantastic job. And um, we were all devastated. I think everyone was devastated when we saw the photographs of uh, this tiny dog in the condition he was in. Um, and it was always a topic in our family talking about it, you know, all the way through the, the, the weeks after, waiting to see, you know, did anybody come forward? Um, nobody came forward. Um, and my own son, David, works in the city fire brigade as well, and he said, you know, nobody's come forward, and now they're looking for somebody to take him. So the minute that was said, my heart sunk. I said, you know, I'd love to, please. I'd love to take him and give him a go to home. Um, providing he would be comfortable with us because it's no good trying to force a dog or uh, anyone somewhere they don't want to go and I met a lovely man, Martin Collin he's in the fur station and I went to his home at his wife and they looked after him up to that day they did a fabulous job with him, he was very comfortable but unfortunately they couldn't continue to look after him so I got out of the car, met Buddy and he came running straight to me into my arms, no problem, as if we'd met previously. He just took me straight away and I fell in love with him. I brought him home. My whole family is completely attached and connected with him. They love him. I met my two son's partners at the door when I came. Sarah swooped him in her arms and Megan was wrong crying. They were just totally emotionally attached to him. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. Yeah. My family come home or if they come in, he just swoops down on the floor. I don't know what the meaning of it. He lies across their feet and he just wiggles his body around their feet and their shoes and in between their legs. It's just so funny to see him do it. But he, he's, he, as I say, he's his own little character. He does funny things and he's very good. He's very responsive to, to anything you, you call him, tell him to go to bed or come in for food or whatever. He's very good. He really is. Uh, does it, does he do this thing where he sort of stretches out his two front legs in front of you and sort of yeah. almost kind of bows down? Does he do that? Yes, he does that. Yeah, well, does. that's a sign that he loves you. That's a sign that he, really? he he wants to literally just jump into your arms. Yeah, we we bought a little book on dog behaviour and dog manner um, after we we brought Finn home and. Um, I'll get you the name of it before we finish uh, and, yeah. and I recommend it it's a beautiful book but it'll tell you all about the little mannerisms 
and it really is beautiful. Uh, do you know, I, 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 I can't get my head around how someone, one person can walk up to the wall of the river and mm. throw a dog over the wall into the water knowing that the likelihood yeah. is that the dog is going to drown. Yeah, yeah. I think if anyone has any problems, uh, you know, can't handle the animals they have, try to get help or, you know, try even put it up on, you know, social media to see if somebody help and take them off and put them through that trauma that, that's horrific, like, horrific for, for him and for everybody else that gets very emotional after viewing it, mm. you know. I think maybe I, just seek a bit of help. Yeah, I, t- I think they probably need a lot more than just help. I, I, I think it's yeah. extraordinary in this country where you can go to prison for not being able to afford a television license and yet people mm-hmm. who throw dogs over walls into very, very deep rivers, tiny little helpless, yeah. defenseless creatures, don't do time. No. In most cases, they're not charged. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about... I, I love the scene where when he saw you, you were the only person he wanted straight into my arms. He was very good at licking my face. <laughs> and I have two other dogs. They're big dogs. Um, they wouldn't be, you know, in-home dogs. They're, they don't sleep in the house or anything. So the minute I came home, he was going nowhere. He was a... <laughs> no, I didn't abandon my other dogs. But he's so small and fragile. He's in, he sleeps. And he went straight into my arms. Anywhere I go, if I go to the bathroom, he sits outside the bathroom door waiting on me. Anywhere I go, he'll follow me. He's mm. fantastic. He's very attached. He'll come, he'll sleep in my room, he'll be bathed in the room, jumps on the bed in the morning, shoves his head in under my hand <laughs> so we know he's awake and yeah. then dies off the bed. He's gone then again. And everyone that knows me know I wouldn't have dogs actually in a house or not a mind, in yeah. the bedroom. But this fellow's after breaking all the rules. And how, how, <laughs> many, how many beds has he? He's three. <laughs> he's one in the sitting room. <laughs> he's one in the sitting room. He's another one in the kitchen at the patio door where he watches everything going on and he's another one over the bedroom. Mm. Yeah, that's a sort of... Um, I think I know another dog very much like him. Our dog actually sits on the couch. Uh, his favourite programme at the moment is Banged Up Abroad. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I think he liked uh, Downton Abbey as well. I think he kind of got a bit hooked on the yeah. costumes and that, you know. Yeah. They really, yeah, they really can talk telly. to you, you know. Yeah, definitely. He he comes in and he just, when you walk in, as I say, you can see the excitement, the noise you hear. They back constantly, keep barking, and then throw himself on the floor on your feet. Anyone that he's met, he does the same thing. When strangers coming in, he will do the very same. He's fantastic. He's a very classic dog, being honest. And I do think whoever had him, I must have, you know, looked at him very well at some stage because he's he's completely house trained. Yeah. Completely house trained. His um, temperament is brilliant, fantastic with uh, children, everything. He's very good. Um, he'll, you know, he'll sit down, he'll go off, and he'll be quiet and just do his own thing. But uh, you know, you call him, you take out a lead, and he just goes wild when he sees the lead because he knows he's going for a walk, and he loves I like, take him mm. for a walk in the forest every evening with the other dogs and he loves the forest just loves it yeah Yeah. so it's so sad to know that that you know there was a possibility that he could have drowned but as I say you know he was was a very lucky dog a very very lucky dog and the Farbigate are fantastic it's not their first animal rescue they're brilliant you know and I think people don't see the other side of that with them they're brilliant well that's yeah and they they are they're they're I think brilliance is, is something that's attached to the firefighters yeah. and I think um, 
Cork City Fire Brigade and indeed Cork County Fire Brigades. They're wonderful because I think while we all sleep in our beds at night, these men and women are out there doing incredible work and putting their own lives at risk as well. So, yeah, so a big thank you to them on that front. And can I just mention as well, while we're on actually, uh, Sharon, um, Cork Rescue, Cork Dog Rescue in Black Rock, the big hospital that they have there and the big area that they keep the dogs in, they're yes. looking for donations uh, of food, dog food. Um, so, you know, because we're coming into... They, they tend to take dogs in, but they have to feed the dogs and they have to look oh. after the dogs. And... Sadly, a lot of the staff are now paying for food out of their own pockets. So if anyone feels like donating, please call down to um, the location there in Black Rock and drop it in because I know that they'll be delighted with that. Sharon, it's a beautiful story and uh, I hope Buddy and yourself and all the family and the dogs enjoy the, the bank holiday weekend. Definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Take care. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Sharon Ann Rogers there. Buddy's new mum and uh, his brothers and sisters delighted that he has his forever home. <laughs> Went past the Borden yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, first time out, went to Ardmore. Ardmore's in Waterford. Yeah, over the bridge and everything. Deal yeah. that bridge into Waterford. And then it's the like... The bridge over Troubles Waterford. Yes, it's nice. Hey, is Cork Water not good enough for you? Uh, I didn't realise Ardmore was in Waterford when I typed it into to Google Maps. What brought you down there? I just typed in beaches and it said <laughs> Ardmore. Are you serious? We have 700 of them in Cork. This yeah. Rocky Bay. I thought Ardmore was one of the ones we had. <laughs> You're so donkey. Casey and Ross in the morning. Test drive the award-winning Skoda Enyaq electric SUV at Null DC Cars. Skoda sales dealer of the year. Courts 96 FM. Now, Sweden has been hailed as the world's first smoke-free country. But Irishman Philip O'Connor, who's living there, says there's more to this than meets the eye. And Philip joins me on the line. Good morning to you, Philip. Good morning, Gareth. How is Sweden this morning? God, it's beautiful. I'm about two hours outside of Stockholm at the moment and the sun is shining. I'm out in the countryside here and it's absolutely beautiful and very much smoke-free where I am, unlike it can be downtown. And just before we talk about smoke-free... Are you all still celebrating winning the Eurovision? Uh, it's still going on. Like, and it was amazing <laughs> to see the like Johnny Logan and everything else like that. And the Swedes were absolutely delighted to finally catch up to Ireland and that. But uh, we'll have to make a comeback next year. I think we'll have to get Johnny and Shay Healy and Dustin and Jedward and everybody to get their heads together. We can't have them overtaken us, Gareth. I just wouldn't be able to yeah. live here anymore if that you, happens. Uh, in fairness, though, you've a lot of catching up to do, haven't you, in terms of wins? <laughs> Exactly. When it comes to that, we definitely do all right. (laughs) Now, uh, let's talk about smoke-free. Sweden is now a completely smoke-free country, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. They've had a goal for a long time, Gareth, of being smoke-free by 2025. And a statistic came out the other day, and they're pretty much sort of claiming victory, much like they did in the Eurovision before the thing even got underway. And they're saying that now, because of the fact that there's less than 5% of daily smokers in the the country now, that they've kind of achieved that. But uh, when I was speaking to you yesterday, to the people from the show yesterday, I was saying, that's not really the full truth, because even though there's not that many people smoking, there's still an awful lot of people using nicotine in different forms. Mm-hmm. Is this this is a thing I've heard about. It's an oral tobacco called snooze, is it? S- snooze, that's the one, snooze. right? So back in the yeah. day 
S-N-U-S, yeah, right. that's how it's spelled. Mm-hmm. And um, b- back in the day, it was basically like a wet chewing tobacco, right? So you get a package that looks like a hockey puck, an ice hockey puck, and it would be really, really moist tobacco, like the kind that you'd find in cigarettes is slightly different, very dark. And what you do then is you get it between the first two fingers in your hand and your thumb, and you do what the Swedes call baking it, right? So you'd make this little plug and you'd pop it up under your top lip, right? Just there somewhere. Do you know where your, sort of, where your nose ends? Just under your top yeah. lip there kind of thing. And you'd leave it there. And it's kind of like chewing tobaccos exist in America for a long time and various different oral tobaccos. And of course, we had snuff in Ireland. I don't even know if it still exists, you know, the people would inhale. So, so this stuff is what was used then. And that underwent a sort of a transformation in the last 20 years, right? Because if you were doing this, baking this thing with your fingers, right, you're going to get a smell off it. Obviously, you're going to get the juice from the tobacco on it. So the manufacturers came up with the idea of making it into little bags, right? And basically, they're like little tea bags, Gareth. And they're there. There's no, you know, there's no great sort of work to be put into it. You just pop it in there. And they have become extremely popular. And I was reading a statistic this morning before speaking to you where up to around about 20% of people are using that so what's happened is people have gone from smoking cigarettes and all that goes with that for the lungs etc etc and they've sort of you know gone on from that then to snooze but the problem is that snooze isn't free of danger either and there's all sorts of oral cancers and stomach cancers and everything that have been linked to that so Mm. I'm not sure they're quite out of the woods yet when it comes to being nicotine free yeah guys I remember with the the, the tobacco chewing thing in America one of the big side effects was stomach cancer and, and also in like bowel cancer and that what did what what does it taste like? Uh, to be honest, I've never tried it, right? I'll tell you a story, Gareth. I was in Greece in 1991, many, many years ago, and that was the first time that I encountered it. I met Swedish holiday makers, and they said, oh, do you want to try this? Like, you know, And I looked at it, and just the smell of it put, put, put me off straight away. And then the fella showed me, now this is when they still baked it between their fingers, and it was the loose, wet tobacco, right? And what the snooze had done with this young man, he wasn't much older than me. I was only about 21, 22 at the time. He wasn't, but the snooze had burned a hole through his his gum, uh, sort of up around the top of, of his gum where he'd usually park this thing. And you can tell, a lot of athletes use it as well, people who play Olympic handball and soccer and that kind of thing, and you can tell because of the bulge that they're using this stuff where it actually burned a hole through the, sort of the bone in this man's skull. Mm. And as soon as I saw that, Gareth, I went, right, that's not for me. And the other thing is that snooze users, that uh, loose tobacco can be quite strong. And often the first time you use it, uh, it can make you sick. You know, it's, it's very, very strong effect and it can make you sick. So I kind of didn't fancy that. So unfortunately, I can't tell you how it tastes. But what I can tell you is that there's a wide variety of tastes out there now. All sorts of mint variants and there's the sweet variants and, and there's different, you know, kind of like wine. You know, the way wine connoisseurs will tell you, oh, you know, it has tones of this or hints of that. And it's very much become that sort of, uh, that sort of product. I think there's a snooze product, kind of a snooze-like product called Skull Bandits. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it, Philip. I have indeed. And that was an old one. And it was very much like what actually happened with that. I think it's actually banned around Europe now because they tried to sort of import that. And the other thing is that snooze for a long time has been used as a way to get people off smoking. So people who were smokers, like, okay, you can still have the nicotine, but you won't be smoking. So your lungs will be grand kind of thing, you know. But the Skull Bandit thing became a very big thing there. How long ago was that? Must be 20 years or more ago that that came onto the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that was always. Yeah, that, that was always the risk, I think, that the EU didn't want to be sort of, you know, promoting tobacco products or that kind of thing. And obviously the Swedish manufacturers of these things would be delighted to do it. But one of the places that's turned up, Gareth, which is amazing, I work a lot with sports journalism, and it's huge among fellows who play football in the Premier League, right? No, so really? if you get Roy Keane on there, 
Yeah, yeah. The next time Roy Keane is in Cork, grab him and bring him into the studio there and ask him about the use of snooze. Some clubs have banned it. Uh, some clubs have banned the throwing of it in trash cans in the locker room and that kind of thing because the smell of it. No, it's not the worst smell in the world, but these little pouches, these little tea bag like things can get everywhere. So it's an absolutely huge thing. But the problem that the Premier League players have is that it is not sold in England. So if ever I'm on you know social media on Instagram or whatever and I say, oh, I'm off to England, I'll often get a footballer that I know over there who drops me a little message saying, oh, is there any chance you could bring some of that snooze over to me? Oh, I, I didn't realise that it had gone to that level of sport. Premiership League footballers. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the thing that, mm. like, it's one of those things that it doesn't really affect, negatively affect performance, right? If right. you smoke, there's probably plenty of footballers when you and I were growing up that would have smoked on the side or on the sly. Mm-hmm. And even in the 90s, there was one or two, I think, you know, well, we can't name any names, you never know. But they would enjoy the odd cigarette here and there. But obviously, in, in the modern world, when everything is so so well measured and that you can't do that. But the snooze, apparently, it, it actually has a little bit of a stimulating effect rather than any sort of depressive effect. If you were smoking 20, 20 fags a day and running around, you wouldn't last long in the Premier League at the moment so I think that's why and obviously they're so limited in what they can eat and what they can put into their bodies and that kind of thing that the, the one little thing that they do find that they're going to use that instead Well, so, so effectively it, your, your lungs remain reasonably healthy but your jaws begin to fall apart <laughs> exactly. Your head starts to fall apart, yes. and your stomach isn't in the best state either. <laughs> well, what a pastime! I don't know whether you've exactly. heard. There's a push to ban the purchase of cigarettes for under twenty ones here in Ireland. What do you think of that? Like, is it fair, or is it a, a nanny state behaviour? Do you know what? I, I smoked myself when I was younger and the best thing I ever did was give them up, Gareth. And it, like, it extended, you know, we have Gaelic football over here, we have soccer over here and I was still playing even last season. I'm 51 years of age now and I don't think I would have been able to do that with smoking if I was still smoking. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever. What I would say is that I think banning things and ju- just getting rid of it, I don't think that's going to work, right? Because, you know, A, you'll create an illegal market for it. Like over here, they used to tax cigarettes here. I think the first time I came here in 1996, a packet of cigarettes around about that time was maybe eight or ten pounds right yeah. it probably doesn't sound like a lot at the moment but that was enough that was like you get four points for the same money in Dublin you know <laughs> but what I do think and what I think the Swedes have depended on in terms of getting their daily smokers down to below five percent is education right yeah. it's you know when you when you get into schools early and that kind of thing now I don't think the pictures you know these pictures of blackened lungs and everything on the cigarette packets I don't think they make any difference either it's actually getting kids before they start to smoke and say look at this isn't cool. It's not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. It's going to leave you with an addiction. It's going to take all your money. So you're probably better off not starting. And I think there, and you know, I also think, Gareth, that you know, young people today don't drink as much as we did when we were younger either. Mm. So I think it's actually an easy sell to young people. It's more difficult for elves like ourselves maybe to stop. That's a whole different question. But then banning us is not going to, that's not going to stop it either. We'll just go, we'll get the duty free, we'll find some way of doing it. And as we've seen with the prices going up and up, and people would rather sacrifice something else than the packet of fags. So I think rather than coming with the heavy hand of the state, as you mentioned there, I think we have to be gentle and put our arms around the shoulders of smokers and say, lads, what can we do to help you to give up? Yeah, that's true. And we are, we're of a generation, I think. Not that we're old, we're just, we're more elderly wise. Is that the way to, to describe it? Um, I, I, I would describe us as experience now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Through bad experience comes good experience. <laughs> exactly, mostly bad. <laughs> do you know, it's funny, can I just say, like you said there, you know, 
we're of a generation where everything comes down for a lot of people here in Ireland and Irish people abroad we compare everything against the price of the pint a f- friend of mine said to me the other day he said he says isn't it absolutely shocking he says now I know the price of bread's coming down again but he says I went in there to my supermarket the other day and the, la- the price of a large sliced pan is now the price of a pint and I said so what 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 are you going to do he says oh he says if it comes down to it I'm going to give up eating bread <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple beer for breakfast that's a whole other new lifestyle we're talking about right there wash your teeth <laughs> can I just um, what's it like living in Sweden I've always been curious And but before you answer I think we might make you our official uh, spokesperson for when you host the Eurovision next year how do you feel about that? I would be more than happy to do it, but only on the proviso that every other country votes for Ireland, and indeed that the songwriters from Cork. Johnny Logan has done great things for us, right? But now mm. we need a Cork, so we need you know, John Spillane or somebody to come and to give us an L song for uh, that. No, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a great place, Gareth. It's a really well-organised society. I often say that if you were to put Sweden and Ireland together, you'd have the best country in the world, yeah. because you'd have the Irish personality and the crack and the, the sense of community here. That's one thing that's, you know, people can be a little bit offside here. You know, they may not be some of the people who pass by your house and knock on your door and that kind of thing, whereas of course you'll do that in Cork and around Ireland, you know. Yeah. But it is, it's a fantastically well-organised society and, you know, we, we can learn a lot. But as I say, they could learn a lot from us. Uh, their national day is coming up now on June 6th and somebody's going to call me from some radio show now soon enough and say, okay, you managed to celebrate St. Patrick's Day all over the world and we can't even celebrate Sweden's national day here, you know. So there's a few things they can learn from us as well. You know? okay. And your ambition is to meet ABBA. Oh God, I've already done that. I'll tell you the story about oh. Bjorn some other day. Oh, Myself and Bjorn are great mates already. <laughs> wow, well, we'll follow that one up. Philip, great to talk to you. And by the way, John Spillane, as you speak, is penning the song. So who knows? You never know. That's what I hear. I look forward I look forward to introducing him in the Globe in Stockholm next year. It'll be the proudest moment of my life in Sweden. Oh, you're, you're a great man. Thanks, Philip. Have a great weekend. And you too, Gareth. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. That's Philip O'Connor, Irish man in Sweden. There's a book in that, that's for sure. We want to send you and a friend to see the biggest stars. Stars. On the world's most famous party island. Party island. <laughs> Just watch me dance. Your next big way to win is coming. Tuesday at 8.15am. On Cork's 96FM. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Good morning to you. It's Gareth O'Callaghan here on Cork's 96FM, the Opinion line just coming up to 10 to 10 that's the time this Friday morning a beautiful morning looking at the sun trying to break through the little bit of misty cloud there in the early morning across Cork City and whatever you're doing over the weekend take us with you and enjoy the weekend PJ's back on Tuesday now we opened the show this morning with um, an extract from the Sun interview that Philip Schofield had done during the week and it was printed in the newspaper yesterday and everyone doesn't matter who they are, everyone all over the country and all over the UK and probably all over Europe talking about the whole Philip Schofield story now, Schofield Gate. Uh, So as promised, here is some of that explosive BBC interview with Philip Schofield yesterday. Um, I think I understand how Caroline Flack felt Last week, 
my daughters hadn't been there, then I wouldn't be here. And they've guarded me um, and won't let me out of their sight. It's like a weird numbness. I know that's a selfish point of view, but you come to a point where you just think, how much are you supposed to take if all of those people that write all of that stuff, do they ever think that there's actually a person at the other end? Are you feeling okay to do this? Are you feeling strong enough to do this interview? Yeah, I have to. Why? Why do you want to do this interview? Because there is an innocent person here who didn't do anything wrong. Uh, who is vulnerable and probably feels like I do. When did you last speak to him? Um, as I engaged the lawyer for him. Um, so um, he needed independent support. And so that was the last time. Is that a few weeks ago now? Yeah, a couple of weeks. OK. How concerned are you about his welfare right now? Massively. So to be absolutely clear, how old was this young man when you first had any kind of sexual contact with him? 20. 20. I, wanted, I mean, this is obviously the nub of it, and for the record, and to put speculation to rest, did, let me ask you directly, did you have any kind of sexual relationship or sex with him when he was underage? No, God, no. That, that... And people would say, the circumstances are as follows here. You met someone who was a child, you were in a position of power over them, you used your power eventually to give them something they craved, which was a shot at a job in the media. You nurtured a relationship, and then that relationship became sexual. And they might ask, what's the difference between that and grooming? Well, I would say that the initial list of things was not, not right anyway. Tell me, why? Because it was a totally innocent picture, a totally innocent Twitter follow, of which I follow 11,400 people, and uh, and then it was a, a completely innocent backwards and forwards over a period of time about a job, about careers. What's wrong with, with talking to someone, no matter, you know, what age they are? Does that mean that if, you know, if you are, if you're following anyone on Twitter, that you absolutely don't talk to anybody else or you don't give advice? So I, 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 I disagree with the summation that you just gave because that does paint a very grave picture. Do you know if he has signed an NDA, a, a non-disclosure agreement, preventing him from speaking? No. You don't know no, if he, he has? No. Did I make him sign an NDA? No, absolutely not. But there's a question of whether or not he was, as it were, paid off. And no. in effect, if he was paid off, no. was he paid for his silence? No. God, no. No. So no. is he free to speak if he wants to? Yeah. Yes. I mean, what he wants is for all of this to go away. There's an extract from the BBC interview that Philip Schofield uh, sat through yesterday discussing very, very, very delicate and upsetting issues in relation to his own mental health.
to the possibility that he just felt that life was no longer worth living because of what he has come through. And I listened to that interview very early this morning. I was shocked. In fact, I felt quite queasy while I was listening to it at home. And when I listened to it again there, I still feel uncomfortable. Uh, Very upset. Upset for the young man involved. And also upset, I have to say, that Philip Schofield finds himself in a situation like this this week where he just feels that possibly suicide might be the only way to solve this issue. And it was interesting, I thought, that he mentioned Caroline Flack. Caroline Flack was an up-and-coming superstar. Many of you will remember her from, I think it was Love Island. Certainly she, she was, she was, her star was in the ascent very clearly. She was a stunningly good-looking presenter. She was a very intelligent individual. She was sparky. She had a wonderful personality. And unfortunately, she took her own life in the midst of a very difficult situation in connection with her partner. And in the aftermath of her death, and this was for me the tragedy of this, was that people started backpedaling. And people started saying, well, actually... It wasn't quite as black and white as it sounded. And I was thinking to myself, but where's Caroline Flack in all of this? Caroline Flack is not here to answer to this. If it had been dealt with differently, Caroline Flack would probably still be here today and would be an A-star when it comes to popularity in television. She may even be presenting her own television show every day of the week. Sadly, she's dead. And she took her own life because she felt she could no longer control what was being said about her. And I think it's very important that we remember here that whatever Philip Schofield got up to and whatever he's been talking about and the fallout of this in relation to what other people are talking about, also the very dangerous speculations that have been laid like small landmines that can't be backed up because there's no proof And to say anything outside of what we're reading and hearing would be defamatory and very, very dangerous. I think he needs to be given a little bit of space at this stage because he now finds himself in a corner. And I think if it was your son or your daughter who was in the situation he's in, or the situation this young man who we're not going to name is in, you would probably say, hold on a minute back off, stop targeting this guy, give him a little bit of a break, let him go away and let him rethink what needs to be done and how he's going to handle his future, which looks pretty bleak at the moment from a career point of view, that's for sure. Anyway, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that one. Text or WhatsApp 0833 96 96 96. 083 396 96 96. Someone just texted me here saying, Gareth, are you condoning what he did? Well, what he did, he is coming out straight there. As he said in this interview, what he did was not illegal. It was probably not a good idea at the time. uh, And hindsight is a great gift. And unfortunately, he's paying the price of something that he admits was probably not an appropriate thing to do at that stage. But, you know, I think it's very, very important that we, we begin to allow the guy a bit of space and that we see things from his side, okay? That is very, very, very important. Now, as I say, 083 96 96 
uh, is our number for your text and WhatsApps. Lots of your comments as well this morning. Um, can I say a quick hello, by the way, to all the, the lifeguards who are on duty officially from this weekend. Have a safe weekend, guys and girls, wherever you're based, and uh, hopefully you'll pick up a bit of a chance to pick up on the suntan as well. It's Gareth O'Callaghan this Friday morning on the Opinion Line. The 10 o'clock news is next. You make me feel The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon Raising money for Cork Cancer Services Your donations will make a massive difference I'm now delighted to announce that the total raised in the 2023 Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon is €429,597. What an absolutely breathtaking result. Thank you. A huge thank you to everyone who supported the Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon. You make me feel Only on Cork's 96FM The lines are live Hello. Join the conversation Call 0818 96 96 96 Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96 Email opinion at 96FM.ie This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Cork's 96FM Good morning to you, beautiful Friday morning It's Gareth O'Connor Callahan for PJ, who's back on Tuesday with you. 0833 96 96 96 is our text or WhatsApp number. Now, the Philip Schofield piece from the BBC interview that uh, he was a guest on during the week has garnered a little bit of reaction here. Ted says, Gareth, it doesn't sit well with me that Schofield mentioned Caroline Flack. He's just trying to garner support and make people feel sorry for him. Ted, if I remember rightly, Philip and Caroline were good friends prior to her her own death uh, three years ago, February the 15th in 2020. So I think in fairness to him, I can see why he mentioned her. Um, I also got a comment in here. You're in the game long enough, Gareth, to wonder if that ITV fella is only sorry that the story broke. The story broke after a very long time waiting to be broken. The story was building, and I think if you read read up on this from the, the moment we started hearing about it, and particularly the uh, the mail, the UK mail newspaper, which published Philip's press release, uh, apologising and telling sort of various details that would obviously give his own perspective on it. And that was when all hell broke loose, obviously. Um, so I, I think really... He probably knew the story was going to break, so I have a feeling that he tried to get in ahead of all of the fallout with a press release, with his own version of the events. Bill says, uh, let me just look down some some interesting texts coming in here. Why do you think Holly's not talking? Well, I don't know, because I don't know Holly. Uh, I don't know Philip. I, I, I don't know any of them. I'm like you. I'm, I'm kind of looking in on the outside. But there are a lot of people sitting on the fence here, particularly those in ITV. And I would say Philip and I would say Holly. And they're probably dreading this weekend's Sunday newspapers, as PJ mentioned during the week. The Sunday newspapers in England are the defined weekend reading for everybody, whether you're a football fan, whether you're a footballer, whether you're a broadcaster, whether you're the king, they all get copies of the Sunday newspapers. The clout the papers on a Sunday have throughout England particularly and the the wider UK, at one stage there were 12 newspapers for sale, 12 national newspapers on a Sunday. That'll tell you how popular and how powerful a punch they, they kick. 
Uh, I think it's down to about seven or eight now, but they're still very, very much uh, awaited for at the weekend and particularly this weekend. Um, A number of you also speculating, and I can't read out your texts, I'm sorry, because uh, it's what they call defamation by insinuation. And in case you've never heard of that, when people make a general comment, for example, and this is just off the top of my head, uh, she likes her men very young. Okay, Uh, that can be misconstrued if it's taken to the extreme. So when you make a sweeping general statement like that and then you walk away from it, you could find yourself in trouble because there is a law in the laws of defamation, which is called defamation by insinuating insinuation. So you're not insinuating anything specifically, but it could be specified that you were if the other party decided to pick up on it. So we've got to be careful in this whole area as well. Now, 083 396 96 96. Uh, Lisa says, Gareth, great show. Al Pacino just had a baby at 82 with a 29-year-old. It's a witch hunt on Schofield. We are pushing equality. Why can a man, uh, why can a man do, it, do it with a woman? No problem. But because it's two men, it's a different story. I don't get it. And that's true, Lisa. People feel very uncomfortable that the young man involved is as young as he is, but as Philip Schofield mentioned, he didn't do anything illegal. And in the eight or nine days since the story broke, no one has been able to prove otherwise, and he sticks by the story, and we have to believe him, and that's his his story. The age of consent in England is 16. The age of consent here was 16, I think, or maybe it was 18, but it's now 17 here in the Republic of Ireland. The age of consent in Northern Ireland and in the UK is 16. Uh, The young man involved, we were told, got a job with ITV when he was 18 years of age. And, uh, well, we'll take it from what Philip Schofield says happened beyond that date. Okay, that's the way things are, as we know. Now, in recent weeks, the COVID perspex screens in retail outlets have been taken down. I don't know whether you've noticed this. Um, I kind of walked into, I walked into one of my supermarkets there. Not that I own very many of them, but uh, the one local to us, which we always use. And the perspex screens are gone. And I kind of felt a bit uncomfortable because obviously it's something we've come to accept and see as important. But they're gone now. And um, it's causing a bit of a stir among workers and, as I say, also among some of the customers. John, good morning to you. Morning, how are you, guys? I'm good, John. I'm good. It's good to talk to you. I haven't spoken to you in a long time. You spoke to the checkout girls in Lidl, and this reminds me of a John Spillane song, The Dunn's Girls, The Dunn Stores Girl. Now, the girls in Lidl, their COVID perspex screens are after being taken down. And what's after happening? Well... When you walk into the store, I mean, when they were all taken down, first of all, there's kind of, um, you said, there's, some, there's something strange here because you're so used to these barriers now and that's what we've become used to, right? There's prospects all around us, you know, at both sides. If you're in one checkout, there's prospects in the next one as well. So it's like going through a tunnel of plastic. And uh, look, they were very impersonal as the guards interaction between the, the, the checkout operator and the customer, right? Yeah. But uh, they had to be put up for, obviously, because one checkout girl alone, um, 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 boy and, and a man on the, on the checkout, could go to a 1,000 customers a day. That's a 1,000 people breathing in your direction. Now, 
since they've taken them down, the, the store stores look all. I've been in a few stores, and uh, the, the store looks a lot more airy, right, and more open, you know, and it's less claustrophobic. But the girls have said to me when I asked them, I said, "How do you feel about the screens taken down?" Now, look, uh, it's great to see the screens taken down. It's not as intrusive, no, or off-putting. They said, "Well, one two girls told me, like, I mean, that they were since they were only down a week, they're already after getting chest infections and eye infections." And I got this from three different stores. And it's obviously, like, I mean, that it's the close proximity, again, of dealing with the customers because when the plastic barrier was there, you were inclined to stand back a bit. But now that the barrier was gone, just being human nature, I said, I find myself, I to check myself, Gareth, that I'm kind of maybe leaning more towards the counter than I was previously because there was a barrier there. Mm. And obviously when I'm doing that and other customers all day long, and if you're on a checkout, I mean, the potential, I mean, for to pick up something like, I mean, some bug is there. And I, I think, be honest with you, I think, now, money, no, the staff were not, in any of the stores weren't consulted about this, right? Now, I was on to one trade union yesterday, and they haven't been contacted by any employees, right, for the shops that they represent. But, I mean, the government said, yeah, God knows, I mean, there's something else we should look at and maybe ask. So... Like, was there any permission uh, aside from the staff, like, I mean, to know how they feel about it? Because I think they should have been consulted. Now, it's obviously these screens have been put away because they could be brought out again in the winter, or God forbid, if we got another, uh, some kind of a pandemic or whatever, right? They're not going to throw them out, and they will reinforce them and put them back in again. But, I mean, maybe they should have been just, look, as I said, we all found them off putting and everything, but we got used to them. But I think, like, for the sake of the... And it's mostly women, like, I mean, they're going to checkouts, and they've gone home to very young kids, some of them as well. Mm. The last thing you want is going to a place of work and picking up infections every five seconds and going home to your family and then infecting your kids and maybe maybe your grand, the grandparents or whatever. So I think maybe it's time maybe to think about it again and maybe, you know, I'd be nearly saying, put them back up again. Yeah, those screens have been there now for nearly three years. They have indeed, yeah. 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 And, and I, it's I, obviously, if they're only down a, a, a short week, right, and girls are getting sick already, I mean, that'll tell you that. Yeah. When I was in the South Infirmary, uh, I'm, it was the car accident was 12 weeks ago, and I was I was in there for three weeks. And my, my last week in the South, uh, the HSE said that the directive was up and issued that uh, staff, nurses and catering staff and doctors could take their masks off. Now, a lot of the staff, a lot of the nurses particularly, were delighted because, you know, when you're doing a 12-hour shift and you've got to wear one of these things for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But the very same thing happened. I noticed, because I was on first-name terms with most of the staff in the ward, yeah. um, one of the nurses would say, oh, yeah, Linda's actually at home sick. She has a chest infection. And that would have been within two days of taking the mask off. That's the problem, Mick. And you see, look, I mean, okay, it's very hard to walk, I mean, I mean, and move around with those things on you, right? But we'll say even if the nurses didn't wear them, I think uh, when you go to any setting yourself as a patient, whether it be the the hospital outside CUH or any hospital in Cork or even your own GP, I went in lately for a checkup there and I'd forgotten my mask and I apologised to the girl. She says, no, that's kind of that you don't have to wear them anymore. But I still feel if you're going into a GP, like, I don't know what the person sitting next to me, like, if they have some kind of a bug. They don't know if I have a bug. I mean, it's the same at the hospital. Whatever bug, maybe it being very intrusive trying to work as a nurse or a doctor with the man. I think the patients, when you go into a medical setting, I think you should have to have a mask. Yeah. 
and is it worth bringing them back or is it a case now that particularly in the hospital environment that they're off for the best part of seven weeks at this stage I think probably a lot of the staff would have recovered from whatever ailments they've picked up would it be going backwards if we were to bring them back well, I'd say whatever about the, the staff wearing them, like, I mean, I think when you're working to us proximity with patients, I think, and examining them, I think unless you're, you're breathing problems or that you have to do tests and everything, that you have to remove the mask, I think the patients, when done to us proximity to medical practitioners, I think should still wear a mask. And I also think that the girls, I think they, they may, might want to look at this again in the stores, like whether it be very uh, busy chain stores inside in cocktail sell floors or whether it be a local supermarket. As I said, one operator could go to a, a thousand people a day there, so that's mm. a thousand times open to infections. And I, I think maybe it's time maybe to look at it again, you know? Yeah. Good point, actually. Yeah, John. Nice to talk to you. Have a good yeah, weekend. Yeah, you too, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks, John. Uh, so, should the, the COVID perspex screens go back in retail outlets around the city and county? Um, it's, it's causing a stir among workers, as John said. Uh, in terms of the hospitals, my feeling was when I was in the South Infirmary, there was. Um, a kind of an overwhelming reaction of we're delighted to be able to get rid of the masks and we probably might pick up something, but hopefully it's just a once-off. Uh, and once again, I send my very best wishes on to all the staff in the, the South. I hope you're all well if you did come down with something. Now, our number is 083 396 We'll get round to some of your comments very, very shortly. Some very interesting comments coming in on the Philip Schofield situation. And uh, also a couple of comments coming in in terms of the under-21 tobacco purchase ban. More on that shortly. Pat, good morning to you. Good morning, Garrett. How are you? I'm fine. You're uh, you're in my home territory there. You're actually driving through the Grange area of the Cork City, of Cork City at the moment, isn't that right? Yes. What's, ha- yes. what's after happening? Uh, well, basically, if you come up from the airport roundabout past the Circle K in Hanley's, you come to a set of traffic lights that will take you over to, I think it's to Klein. But if you go up to over the brow of the hill, yeah. that stretch where the curves left it to come up, it looks like either a trailer or a truck is after spilling a load of what I would call large gravel. Right. It's mainly centred towards the centre of the road between the up and down sides, both sides. But as I came as I came down as I came down there a second ago, a car coming up ran over some of it and it was literally like a firecracker wherever it hit my car. Right. So these are stones uh, the size of cherry tomatoes or bigger. Right. Like like coal, you like know? lumps and of it, coal, yeah? No, it's stone, it's gravel. Right. It's not coal, it's not coal, but it's um, it's a bit of a hazard. Yeah. Is there, is there so a lot, is there a lot of it? Oh, there's a good 100 to 150 yards of it. Wow. You know, sprinkled out. Wow, okay. Um, it, it's not an actual pile. It's like, you know, something going up and curving to the left, because yeah. that road curves to the left as you go up along. And if it was able to get out over the side of whatever it was in. Right. And it just sort of spread, it just sort of spread as it went up the hill. Right. Is this on the you way, know? this is on the way up from Circle K up towards uh, Elmwood Medical Centre? Yeah, well, up where the top of the hill levels off. All right, okay. Right, and it sounds fairly right, hazardous. Not familiar, yeah. uh, uh, it is. I'm not, I'm not familiar. I appreciate this. If some heavy vehicle, like a truck, spins a piece of it off and there's a pedestrian, it will hurt them. 
it'll mm. do serious damage, let alone what it could do to cars. You know. Okay. Well. So maybe, uh, maybe the roads people need to have a look at it. Yeah, I, well, maybe if there's a, a Garda vehicle in the area, they might be alerted to that. Uh, we'll we'll follow that one up, Pat. Drive safely, and thanks for calling us. You're welcome. Have a good day. You Bye-bye. too. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Okay, so Circle K, coming off the Kinsale Road roundabout, you're heading up towards the church in Grange there, uh, and up over the brow there, um, beyond the set of traffic lights which would take you up the hill, uh, the sort of the the shortcut down onto the the airport road, and um, if you know the industrial uh, estates up there, it's not that. It's just as you go up over the hill towards uh, the Grange Church there, along that road, which will take you up to Super Value in Grange. Now, um, commuting in Cork City is, as many of you will know, famously complicated. But Examiner journalist Michael Moynihan says his journey to work is filled with danger. Good morning, Michael. Gareth, how are you? I'm good. It's nice to talk to you, Michael. When you say filled with danger, what do you mean? I found this morning coming in along the South Link, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, um, and welcome back uh, to the airwaves yourself, Gareth, you. as well, obviously, before I, before I get going. Yeah, I suppose, look, a pal of mine in Dublin was on the phone and saying he had a terrible commute across Dublin, which obviously is a lot of traffic challenges itself. And I had I felt I had to correct him that we weren't driving through pastures and meadows here. And when I broke down my commute from Ballinock across the Blackpool, which isn't that long, but crosses the city, I actually kind of found myself enumerating a lot of, you know, kind of, as you say, places that would make you feel pretty uncomfortable and it wouldn't take much uh, for something to go maybe seriously wrong, but certainly for traffic to back up and for people to take chances and to overtake and so on and so forth. And I just, once I started listing it, there didn't seem to be any shortage of uh, potential flashpoints. Is it because the the cars now have become too big for the roads that we have here in the city? Well, it's ironic you mentioned that. I was actually coming back and I stopped in the Tesco Express on the on the Douglas Road and I have an ordinary car, but there was a person in a, a kind of a Dukes of Hazard truck who was taking up two spaces back to back right next to me? <laughs> yeah. um, I, was, I, I just wonder how they get into parking guards. I think it's a combination of factors. Obviously, you know, you, you need only look <clears throat> at the city streets and you see large SUVs and Chelsea tractors, and you're kind of wondering what is the what is the point of these things? You know, in the middle of the city. I think obviously it's parts of the city are quite old and were never designed for vast volumes of traffic. You have a lot of traffic now. That's for various reasons, has to cross the city for people to get to work. And like your previous caller said, it only takes one breakdown or one, you know, fender bender or a truck takes a corner. And it seems as if the whole system kind of breaks down, that if there's one if there's one problem over here, uh, we say kind of near the Jacklands Tunnel, that affects Douglas and Black Rock, and that affects the city centre, what's coming out. And the whole thing just seems to, to break down very quickly in a kind of a domino effect. Mm. So what's the solution? I don't think there is a solution, is there? Well, I suppose, I think it's an old uh, precept in, in urban planning that the more roads you build, the more traffic you generate, mm. and the more parking you offer, the more traffic you generate towards the parking. I mean, it's it's a bit radical, I, but I, I would think actually removing traffic in its entirety from the kind of central island, um, you know, not 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 in a kind of, you know, <clears throat> like we had in Patrick Street, a supposed exclusion home, but actually just stopping traffic going through 
the centre of the city would force us to accommodate that with, you know, bus uh, bus corridors that would actually lead somewhere that wouldn't be kind of just adding to the traffic. Because it's quite obvious that what we have doesn't work, you know, and it only takes, as I say, one small uh, incident to create gridlock. But whether there's an appetite for that, you know, especially when there isn't a public transport alternative for people to get across the city, you know, it's not always convenient that you live here, but you need to be at work over here and there isn't a direct bus route. You know, it, it needs to be a coordinated effort. I suppose what I was just trying to point out was that, look, it's it's stressful and it's okay to yeah. be stressed about it because everybody else is stressed as well. And like the element of personal responsibility comes into that too. You know, we can't just blame city council. People have to say to themselves, you know, my, my needs and my desire to get somewhere don't supersede everybody else in this queue for traffic, which which is something we all see on a, on a regular basis. And very few people seem to heed the yellow boxes and the red traffic lights anymore, from my experience, particularly coming in around the Elysian there and onto Albert Street, you've four sets of traffic lights as you head out onto the bridge. Um, mm. and, and it's just, it's chaotic. It was chaotic at quarter past seven this morning. Yeah, I mean... That's a particular bugbear of mine because there, at least there is a yellow box and you can say, well, at least that's that's something. But anyone who's driven around the Elysian with it on its left coming through Albert Street will yeah. notice that the traffic on Albert Road just comes into the yellow box. And the funny <laughs> thing is the traffic on Albert Street just seems, everyone seems to operate to the same principle. We won't go into the yellow box, mm. but the other traffic does. It just yeah. it, stri- it always strikes me as a really curious psychological phenomenon. Now, I appreciate coming from Albert Road you kind of say, well, the traffic isn't getting a chance to cross Albert Key onto the bridge, so I'll have to do that. But it just it just backs up. You can see frustration. I've seen people hop out of the car and kind of have frank conversations <laughs> with, with with others. And I mean, again, without blaming someone in particular, there's the big one of the biggest guard stations in the country is 50 yards away. Yeah. And I actually think if if a guard came over in a high vis jacket, as you say, from say seven to nine. And mm. just stood there. the The whole thing would move a lot faster. I mean, it is a, it is a real urban legend. But any time the traffic lights fail, even temporarily, the, the the traffic does seem to move a little bit better. Yeah, it does. In some places, they should rename that Victor Meldrew Junction. Oh God, yeah. It's it's. And I mean, in fairness, there are, there are pedestrian crossings, and obviously. It's a busy place mm. as people are trying to head towards, you know, off Albert Road and down Albert Road. So people are nipping in and out and, you know, there's a, a kind of a half a cycle lane next to that. Then there's there's plastic bollards. So, I mean, to me, you know, surely, and again, I don't want to blame City Council, but going out there, a traffic engineer at seven in the morning would immediately see their master's thesis in front of them. <laughs> Here's something now we can do. We could we could change the traffic light circuit. We could we could have our little traffic uh, cop with his white gloves pointing and yeah. telling people to go. But you know it's 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 extraordinary. I suppose there's a sense that I have to do it every morning. It's a pain in the backside for ten minutes, and then I forget about it. Yeah, and it's it's not an ongoing issue for people. But you know, unfortunately, look, I know to whom I'm speaking. You know, you'd hate for there to be a serious accident yeah. and no one wants to be saying, I told you so. But these are a lot of these things are, are easy fixes, uh, I think. But again, you know, people are happy to break the laws of the land when they're driving. It's That's another interesting 
psychological phenomenon and where it comes from I don't know because you know the people as we all know do things in cars that they wouldn't dream of doing if they were walking down the mm. footpath Well I always remember years and years ago uh, my one and only time that I drove in Boston um, mm. I, 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 I was caught in an amber went through it and then there was no way out the far side so I was sitting in the middle of a junction Yeah um, ju- just off oh, what's the the name of the big street there it's, it's, uh, I can't remember what it, there's lots of them but the cop mm. came over with the white gloves and I rolled down the window and he just stood there and looked at me and he said you're killing me in the Boston accent <laughs> and I said I'm so sorry yeah. I, I said uh, he said where'd you get your where'd you get your license in a lucky bag and th- <laughs> he just stood there and out, ca- out came the, the little jotter and he just wrote yeah. down. Now, I never heard from them again. Mind you, I, I headed back home to Ireland the following week. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, but but it's, uh, yeah, I know, it, it's a bugbear. It's a thorn in the side. And I think probably everybody feels the very same way about it. Yeah. 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 But um, anyway, uh, happy driving next week anyway, Michael. <laughs> I hope you have the weekend well, the, off. The, the, the irony is I drove in this morning. And whether it's, again, this is another phenomenon. If it's work from home and people taking the option on Friday, and it was a breeze, sailed through into town and, and back out um, again. I'm not, I'm not sure if Cork is particularly bad. I think older places, you know, kind of like the centre of Dublin obviously wasn't built for, you know, traffic and, and Cork the same. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's grim. It's grim going. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know whether you find it, it's Thursday mornings. I call it terrible, yeah. ter- terrible Thursday. Yesterday was hell. This morning wasn't too bad, as you say. We kind of breezed through pretty quickly. But uh, for some reason, everybody seems to want to be in the city centre in Cork on a Thursday. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Ha- have a good weekend, Michael. Great to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Gareth. Thank Mind you. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Michael Moynihan there, Irish examiner, columnist and book reviews. Actually, I should have asked him for a good book for over the weekend. Anyway, we'll come back to that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
In relation to lifeguards, morning, Gareth. This is from Timmy. Great to hear your voice on 96. Glad you are recovering well. Could you please thank all of the beach lifeguards that will commence the service on our beaches this weekend? They do an amazing job keeping us all safe. Have a great, safe weekend, everyone. They do an excellent job advising people on water safety and are also first aid trained in the event of an accident. That's from Timmy, and so say all of us. Uh, I'd say it'll be a busy weekend considering the weather. Please be safe around the water. Uh, In relation to animal cruelty, uh, Shiona says, Good morning, Gareth. Great to hear you back on the radio. So glad you're doing well after your car accident. Thank you. As a huge animal lover from horses to small animals, we seriously need legislation change. Big fines and jail terms are needed and people who harm animals should never be able to have them in their possession or care again. And uh, I completely agree with that. I was looking at some of the animal cruelty laws, if you could call them that. And believe it or not, some of them date back as far as the 18th century. So when you say we need legislation changes, you hit that one on the head. Have a great weekend, Shona. Thank you. And uh, also Jimmy says, I'm 65 now. I never smoked. If you didn't back in secondary school in my time in the 70s, you were not part of the gang. Enjoy the weekend, Gareth. I hope any kids listening will do the same as I did. You don't have to conform to be one of the lads. Jimmy Horgan, thank you, in Cove. Beautiful morning in Cove, I'd say. Now, Irish fishermen are We'll actually we'll go to we'll go to a break first, but I want to chat to Patrick Murphy in relation to the situation with our fishermen, particularly here in Cork and West Cork, and we'll do that after the break. Weekdays from six to nine a.m. on Cork's ninety-six FM. I witnessed an absolutely epic magpie fight this morning. There was about thirteen of them: one for Sarah, two for Joy, three for Garrett, four for Boy, five for Silver. Six for cash gold. Yeah. Seven for a secret never to be told. Eight for a wish. Yeah. Nine for Krispy Kreme. Ten for a can of Dutch gold for a fiend. Yeah. <laughs> Eleven. Eleven for health. Yeah. Twelve for sailing pennies. Thirteen beware's the devil himself. Who's sitting there counting 13 magpies? Casey and Ross in the morning. Test drive the award-winning Skoda Enyaq electric SUV at no DC Cars. Skoda sales dealer of the year. Cork's 96 FM. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96 Friday morning here on Cork's 96FM uh, the opinion line 0833 96, 96, 96 and we're with you through till 12 midday now uh, I personally love eating fish uh, I think we're a nation of fish lovers but Irish fishermen are now under so much pressure their plight has made the New York Times Corkman Patrick Murphy was one of the fishermen interviewed by the paper and he joins me now from beautiful Castletown Bear this morning good morning to you Patrick Good morning, Gareth. Nice to talk to you. Great nice to, to talk to, to the you. listeners. That, nice, likewise, I'd say it's beautiful there this morning, is it? Fantastic. Sun splitting the stones, as they say. Yeah. Will you be going out over the weekend, or are you going to enjoy the weather? Oh, I'm working over the weekend. Ah, right. I'm actually involved in aquaculture with my son, so we've, um, we'll be harvesting mussels, organic mussels. So we, we're, we're steeped in the maritime. We come from an island, uh, Hare Island, off the coastline as well, so oh. we, it's in our blood. Salt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How bad are things at them at this stage, Patrick? 
it's really terrible, to be honest with you. Look, and we've been predicting this for years, and we never foreseen the damage that Brexit would do to us. We lost 25% of the fish we were catching, Garrett, our entire nation. 25%, one quarter of our fish was taken away from us and given to the UK. And Europe has admitted that this was an unfair burden on our state. And we put together a task force under Minister McConlogue, and we had three areas that we wanted addressing. One was to see if we could get our fish back. Two was a balancing of the burden. And three, the last resort of all, was to decommission boats. And we had two um, flotillas of boats up in Cork and, and Dublin. And on every sign from every fisherman was, give us our fish, don't give us money. We just want to catch our fish and earn our living like generations of us before. And unfortunately, as is stated in that paper, which showed boats that were fishing for 30 or 40 years, sustaining families and being a second or third boat has been taken to the scrapyard now and turned into scrap metal. And that's what decommissioning a boat means, isn't that right? Yeah, and it's worse than that, Garrett, just to let people know if they say, well, this is only, you know, to do with fishermen and sure, you know, we have a bad rip as it is, which is unwarranted as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned. Is, is the fact that this has been taken away from future generations. This is no longer a loss just to the fishermen of today. Once these boats and the licenses and everything that goes with them is decommissioned, it's gone for every future generation. So our fleet will remain at what it is. So when I started in fishing first in 1988, there was 20 to 30 boats out of Baltimore, my local port when I was an inshore fisherman. And uh, that's down to four or five now. So Skull, the same thing. There was 200 people working in a factory on, on, on the pier in Skull. That's yeah. a chip shop now, you know. So, like, we're decimating. We're losing um, part of our heritage. We're losing our indigenous people around the coastline. And I'm not just saying this. This is a reality. So when people go down to places like Baltimore and they say, where are the fishing boats gone? They're gone. And they're not going to be returning. And we're in danger now of this being even continued. So... There's 40 boats up for the scrapyard um, out of 180. You know, like, it is devastation to our industry because when you lose a critical mass, as everybody knows, of, of, of an industry, you lose the, the services around that. It, you know, it, it then impacts the population of the coastal communities, which affects the schools, the garden stations, the nurses, the doctors. You know, it has an, a ripple effect right through the community. But for the Irish people, well, as you said, who like to eat fish, I could foresee that we'll see a time where we'll be buying the fish from foreign boats that catch it in our waters and we won't have an Irish person catching Irish fish. It'll be taken away from us and it won't be given back. And as you you say, those boats are in our waters. Yeah, yeah. So like you'd see me on social media trying to highlight this of boats that are replacing our boats now. So once our boats leave the water, that leaves room for other boats to come in. So other boats from Europe are coming in now, taking the places of the Irish boats. As I said, I've, I've put it up on social media um, because I'm so frustrated with this. I'm so frustrated with the current way that the law is being perceived and European law, right, which I believe is totally and utterly incorrect. I'm putting myself forward as a candidate for the next European elections. That's how strong I feel about this. And Gareth, just to explain my own background, I'm fishing all my life. I've never, I've always earned my own money. So 
I've I've a job now in the South and West, and it's a good job. And I have a, an industry behind me with my son, and we have a small farm as well. I don't need to go to Europe. People say, ah, you're going there now for the gravy train. I don't. I have a great life at the moment, mm. and that'll be destroyed if I do go to Europe. But I feel I've no choice. We have to. They're not listening to what we're saying. And we meet with the European Commission. We meet with the parliamentarians outside there. And they just won't listen. We looked for a review of the common fishery policy. And it didn't happen. And they're legally obliged to do it. So we have conversations where Ireland is legally obliged to, uh, to sign up to reducing its carbon emissions. And Europe insists on this. But they don't do the same for our fishing industry. And I think they should be held to task for that. Can you just put it in comparison for me? Uh, when you think, Patrick, the boats that you're operating off, and it's fair to say that when you lose a boat, it's almost like losing your home. Just to let people know it that's is. how serious it's, no, it is. No, no, it is. No, yeah. It is. Like, and that is true because, Garrett, if you come down to the piers now, you see what's changed in fishing in the last number of years since I've been at it is fishermen have to stay at sea longer. They put in freezers into their boats to keep the fishing board longer so they could stay out there. So they reduce their carbon footprint by not steaming in and out to lend the fish. Yeah. So they get better at their job. But that means you spend more time on the sea. So, And even when you come home, it's not a case you turn off the key and you walk away. There's maintenance to do in the boat. So you're li- literally genuinely living on your boat for maybe three weeks of the month at a minimum, you know. Yeah. And the only time you see shore is bad weather, but you can't go away from the boat because you have to keep an eye on it and monitor it and make sure that it's all right and it has, might have to be moved for other boats that come in into the harbour and stuff like that. So you can never actually walk away from it. And it's a real tough life. And we're, what we're finding is the biggest threat now on top of the decommissioning, Garrett, mm-hmm. is there's no young people coming into the industry. We Again, you'd hear this in conversations on the radio with the farming community that there's no young people coming into the industry. We see that right across the state and apprenticeships and everything else. And people are leaving our country. Like We have young people being educated inside in college and they're saying, look, there's no future for us in this country. Yeah. The system is being is broken. And fishing, as I said five years ago, was the litmus test of that. We have the richest waters in Europe. We have the best fishing grounds in Europe. We've, we have the most skilled fishermen in Europe. And I'll explain why people say, oh, you can't make that claim. Of course I do. Because our fishermen have so little fish. To stay legal, they have to be the cutest fishermen on the water because they have to run away from fish when they catch too much of it. Yeah. Because if they catch too much of the wrong fish, they're arrested and they're criminalized and they're put in jail and the money is taken off them for up to 50,000 in fines and their gear is 25,000 in fines. So it doesn't pay a fisherman to be illegally fishing, you know? And there's a lot of mistruths being told about our industry. We fish under the marine, uh, maximum sustainable yield, but other countries aren't catching their quotas. So we never exceed the quotas as a European country. But some countries catch more than they're originally given because they bring in swaps or they trade fish away, try to keep boats legal because there's more fish in the ground of, of a particular type. Yeah. It's a very complex industry. But and, and we get downgraded for bringing in lads into the country from other countries. There was a, an incorrect system brought in for an atypical worker system that didn't suit, right? Because it wasn't the same as other um, atypical schemes. So if a a man left the boat, he had to go home and reapply for to come back into the country as a fisherman. If he didn't do that and he joined another boat then, then that boat owner was prosecuted for taking an illegal worker on board and accused of trafficking. Now, to reverse that, we have our Taoiseach going over with a bowl of shamrock to Biden 
or the president asking him to regularize the illegals in Ireland, in America. Mm-hmm. Not here. Here, you criminalize the person that hires the so-called illegal in our own country. And we've been fighting for a change in those laws since I've been there for the last five years. And finally, that is happening. But we get a bad name. I, like, I could tell you stories that would make your hair stand on end of what's happening to our industry. And thanks be to God, the likes of the uh, Irish, the Times in New York cover this. I have a French journalist that was speaking to me just before you put me on air now that's going to come over and do a half an hour for a big French TV channel to tell the story of what's happening in Ireland. So that, that, we're getting coverage yeah. all over the world and only the likes of yourselves is giving us a chance to tell how bad it is. And this is the last thing I'll say, uh, and you can ask me any question you want to, Gareth. We lost our sugar production in our country and the price of sugar doubled overnight, right? Yeah. And that's going to happen with our fishing industry as well. So when people say, well, this is not going to affect us, there's less money coming into the country. There's less jobs in our coastal communities. The fish that you like to eat will go up in price. It has to. There's going to be less boats. Or the, there's, you're going to be paying bigger prices. So this is affecting each and every citizen in our country. And it's wrong. And the reason why I'm saying it's wrong is there are solutions to this problem that we put in front of our minister and in Europe. And it's very simple. Other countries aren't catching the huge volumes of fish that they have in our waters. And under Uniclass law, United Nations law of the sea, if we were a coastal state, they would be obliged to give that fish back to us. But because we're a member of Europe, it's quantitative voting where our minister go over to Europe and seven other ministers around the table say, no, you are not giving the fish back to you, your own fish in your own waters. And that's crazy. And that needs to be addressed in Europe because we have rights for fishermen enshrined in the treaties and we just need to enforce those laws. But somebody has to go over there and fight for it. I I think you made reference, I, I, I read an interview with you probably about a year ago, I think it was in one of the weekend newspapers, and you were talking about the size of, say, the Spanish trawlers compared to our own trawlers. The hauls that they can pull in and the, the the areas that they sweep for fish and the techniques they use, which Irish fishermen can't use, like is is this is this what Brexit has done, or does this go back years and years before? Because I, I remember, like our milk industry has suffered, our beef industry has suffered, and I I know this is a story that has gone on for a long time, and as you say, it's it's got so bad now that it's intolerable. Where, where does the minister, Charlie McConnell, stand on this. How does is he supporting you? It, to a certain extent, not not to what we've asked for and and what we fought for in Europe. So we went to Europe um, and fought for a change in the European laws in the organisations that I'm on and the executive committees that I'm on, and we put forward proposals that were adopted by the Commission that allowed Ireland to give more money to our fishermen. Right, mm-hmm. one of them was fuel subsidy in France they got 30 cent per litre fuel subsidy and are still getting that. We got nothing. Yeah. Even though our minister had 5 million of unspent money in the last uh, European Monetary Fisheries Fund that was meant for the fishing, he didn't give it to us. So there are things that the minister can do. And look, he'll tell you what he has done and everything else. I don't agree with him, of course. I think he could have done more. And here's the proof of the pudding. Our industry is being wiped out. Our fishermen are leaving in droves. They have no choice. It's called voluntary. 
it's not voluntary when the other alternative is that you go out, catch the wrong fish, couple of boxes, and you're arrested. Yeah. And your crew get no money. There's big massive fines. You're in front of a judge again. Like, these people don't deserve that. Anybody that has seen a fishing boat go to sea and see the weather and the climate change that happens and the weather that these boats have to fight for just to get in and get out, they're risking their lives as they are earning a living. They're doing nothing wrong than just doing the job, which is catching fish. And they're being criminalized for us because we don't have the right quotas. Of course, I think our minister should go more. But if our minister can't achieve it in Europe, it's our Taoiseach's job. Mm. And like we see in other countries, they veto something else in Europe that has nothing to do with fishing until they get what they want in fishing. Why? Because it's just, it's right. And it is the law of Europe, but they're just not applying it because we're being told there's only one minister representing Ireland. There's seven or eight other ministers. And every time he puts something on the table under quantitative voting, he's voted down and he has to come home with his hands in his pockets or his yeah. tail between his legs. And that is not from the, him not trying, Garrett. Mm. It's the system they operate. But they have ways of addressing this. And we changed things. We went and we fought with the European Commission, myself, E. O'Donnell and Brendan Byrne recently, on access into Irish waters. And we convinced them that this was right. So they stopped the Norwegian fleet from coming down into our waters, which is outside of the EU, to catch 214,000 tonnes of yeah. blue whiting right up to our 12-mile line, right? We, as a country, get 56,000 tonnes of that blue whiting in our own waters. That says it all, does so it? this fish is in our waters. Yeah. We own this fish if we were like the UK as a coastal state. Yet we can't seem to get that across in Europe. And I think that we need to bang the table a little harder and we need to be willing to get up off the table and say, no, we're not agreeing to this. And and stretch that out across other areas in Europe to say, listen, you're we're OK in this area, but you're mistreating us totally in our fishing industry. Why? Because fishing is dying in our country. You're literally killing it. The last way I'd, I'd give an analogy of this, Garrett, and this is very simple. What's happening to the people in the Brazilian rainforest that are being pushed out of their indigenous uh, tribes and being moved off is happening in this country. Yeah. Because I would call each individual port like a tribe of fishermen. They have their own customs, songs, shanties, traditions, uh, um, superstitions mm-hmm. in each place. Right. And they're they're being eliminated. Yeah, I'm going to have to leave it there, Patrick. I could listen to you for the rest of the programme, but we've got the news coming up. And as I say, if if you're interested, look up the New York Times online. There's a fascinating interview with Patrick. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Mind with PJ Coogan. Parks 96FM. Good morning to you. We're into our third and final hour. It's Gareth O'Callaghan for PJ today. He's back with you on Tuesday. And that WhatsApps. We'll get round to reading some comments on some of the issues that we were dealing with earlier on very, very shortly. Now, it's going to be the most beautiful June bank holiday weekend in five years. Back in 2018, we had a sweltering bank holiday and we're going to have a, a repeat of that again this weekend. So the beaches will be thronged around Cork.
Cork and particularly all over West Cork with some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. You can expect there to be absolutely thousands of people taken to the beaches this weekend. But there's just one issue and that's uh, care, our lack of care and water safety and swimming alone and taking chances, particularly if you've had a couple of beers and thinking that when the inhibitors go down, you're a much better swimmer than you really, really are. And the sad thing is that some of the people who have, well, found themselves in fatal situations in recent years have been among the best swimmers that you can imagine. But uh, unfortunately, the water has the final say in many of those cases. I'm joined on the line right now uh, from Crosshaven RNLI Lifeboat, John Mathers. Good morning to you, John. Uh, good morning, Gareth. How are you? Good, thanks, John. I'd say you're gearing up for a busy weekend. Well, hopefully not. Um, part of what of the press release that we issued is to try and educate and reduce the amount of call-outs that we get all along the coast. So hopefully not. Just when it comes to swimming in our seas, let's take, for example, in West Cork, some of the most beautiful beaches, as I say, that I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, while the weather might be beautiful and the temperature might be up around 22, 23 degrees and you have that nice breeze blowing in off the sea, the water temperatures still remain very cold, don't they? Yeah, water temperatures catch up later in the summer. So water temperatures at the moment off the south coast are roughly around 12 or 13 degrees centigrade, which can be 10 or 12 degrees difference between the air temperature. So you can get this thing called cold water shock um, by running straight into the sea, which can affect your heart rhythm and uh, cause you to go into uh, into shock. So it's, it's important that if you're swimming that you enter the water slowly uh, so your body acclimatises to the difference in temperatures and you don't get that shock effect of, of, of the cold water. And with the arrhythmia, John, this is the, 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 the imbalance in the heartbeat. Uh, the, the first sign you know that you've got that is you can't breathe. Isn't that the case? Yeah, it's. I'm sure we've all wandered into a cold water for a paddle and as an inv- an involuntary thing, you gasp. Yeah. You, 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 everybody's probably done that. Um, the, the problem comes with it is that, that when you get that and you're in deep water and you take a, a, an involuntary gasp, you can take a lot of water into your lungs and you don't need much water in your lungs to, for that to become fatal. Um, your, your body also reacts by trying to um, protect itself by bringing all the reserves into your core. So that means your arms and your legs become uh, somewhat useless. So the, what we what we say is, and it's proven is this, if, if you couldn't get over that 30 seconds to a minute of the shock by laying on your back, floating, um, put your arms and your legs out in a star-shaped design, you will probably, not probably, you will um, get your breathing back to normal, your heart rate will drop, and then you can decide on your next course of action whether that's swimming back to shore or calling for help. But better still, it's best not to run into the water, as you say, the way people will get this awful issue. Yeah, and and you've also got to remember that whilst the sea temperatures are cold at the moment, lakes and rivers are even colder. Mm. So that's something that's to bear in mind. What, what what about lake swimming? What, what's your view on that, John? Is it, is it a, a complete no-no? 
Look, it really depends where it is. I mean, some lakes are well uh, supervised, um, but we, we'd always say never swim on an unguarded beach, whether it be a lake or a river or, or the seaside. Um, you need somebody there that can be watching and cre- can react if there's a problem. Mm. And and I presume young children have got to be watched at all times, particularly on the beach and on rocks and things like that. Yeah, I think I think that goes without saying that, that children are you should never take your eyes off them to be quite honest with you. Um talking about rocks and things like that, just be aware of the tides at the coast. You know, the tides come in and out twice a day, as we all know. Um so don't get yourself into a position where you are cut off by the tide, um, by rock hopping uh along the coast at all. Yeah, and it's it's as simple as going online and just typing into Google "full tide school" or "full tide crosshaven." Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, oh, uh, I think there's a, a good one. Is Cove Tides? Just just type that into Google, and it will give you the tides. Yeah. What What about life jackets? When should you wear a life jacket? Well, when you're on any sort of pleasure craft, you should wear a life jacket or a buoyancy aid. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a legal requirement for vessels under seven metres anyway. Um, so it's a no-brainer as far as we're concerned. Um, life jackets have saved many, many lives over the past. And uh, we're, we're, we're big advocates of it. Mm-hmm. And in terms of gear generally, if, if, uh, if you're in the water, if you're in very cold water, what would you recommend, apart from a pair of swimming togs? Um, are you talking about the, the cold water shock again, or are you talking about well, well, involuntary just, going in? Yeah, just, just going into deep water. Is, is a bathing suit sufficient if you're in deep water, or would you recommend a, a, a more protective suit? Wetsuits are great. Yeah. They, they they do keep your body temperature a little bit higher than being in, in, in togs, for example. Um, you know, never swim too far away from a beach, to be quite honest. Never get out of your depth. Um, you, you just need to be aware of what's around you all the time. Because of the tides, we have currents as well, obviously, which, which can pull you out to sea or along the coast. So you need to be totally aware of the situation around you at all times. And then that changes throughout the day, as you can imagine. Um, so it's all about being aware and being careful. Um, always, if you can, carry a means of calling to help, whether that's a mobile phone in a waterproof pouch or a VHF radio, just some means of being able to someone help if you get into trouble. And if you have to dial 999, John, um, mm-hmm. which service do you ask for? Is it the Coast Guard or would it be the... the yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, the Coast Guard... Uh, coordinate all all the different rescue assets. So whether it's those in the life uh, boats or the uh, Coast Guard uh, volunteers or the um, uh, beach lifeguards, uh, they will coordinate everything. So if you get into trouble, dial 999, ask for the Coast Guard. Finally, the full moon, John, and we've got one, I think, this weekend, I think on Monday or Tuesday. That's right. Um, yeah, that, yeah. that changes the tides, doesn't it? Yeah, we're coming. We're into what we call spring tides, which means that we actually get the highest tides of the month, but conversely, we also get the lowest tides of the of the month as well. So the tide goes out a lot further, mm. and it comes in a lot further. Um, so this is where you need to be careful again if you're that you don't get cut off by the tide if you're uh, rambling around rocks or sandbanks and so on. And if you are cut off by the tide, do you go for the phone? 
Yes. Immediately. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, immediately. We would rather be called to an incident that has resolved itself than to an incident where we're two minutes late. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. So as you just said there a couple of moments ago, a phone, a, a wet proof phone pouch, something to carry your phone in, make sure it's charged, make sure people know where you are if you're going for a ramble out, you know, on one of these beaches that might have one of those lower low tides and be very careful if the sandbanks, because that's usually a sign that the tide could come in around you and catch you out. Absolutely, and it happens weekly, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. John, it's yeah, been great yeah. talking to you, and, and best wishes to all of the crews there uh, around Cork and West Cork, and I hope you have a, a quiet weekend um, and uh, a good weekend as well. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thanks, John. That's John Mattis there from Crosshaven, RNLI Lifeboat. Uh, something magical about seeing the lifeboat at rest in the harbour. Um, and I suppose if... Uh, many, many years back, I just have such a, a love for the lifeboat industry, the lifeboat vocation, and uh, something I would love to have. I would love to have done, but uh, I think I'll leave it to somebody younger at this stage. But best wishes to all of the members of RNLI this weekend. We want to fly you and a friend to spend one epic week. <laughs> On the world's most famous party island. Party island. <laughs> Just watch me dance. Your next big way to win is coming. Tuesday at 8.15 a.m. On Cork's 96 FM. Now, one of the big stories, of course, this week um, was, of course, Al Pacino's news that he is set to become a father for the fourth time. I think what made it such a big story is the fact that he's 83 but uh, no one would say good for her if someone became a mum at 83. But the rules are different for men like Al Pacino. So says Chrissy Russell, who has been writing about this interesting story in The Independent. Morning, Chrissy. Good morning. It is true, isn't it? I mean, it, different rules apply, don't they? It is true, sadly. And it's awful because I think it comes across as ageist when you're like, oh, 83. But the fact is, do you know what I mean? I do think if it was a mummy, if you were becoming a mummy at 83, everyone would be too busy thinking, God, how is she going to do it? Whereas I think with men, unfortunately, the expectations of what it is to be a daddy are still quite low whenever it comes to child rearing. Now, a couple of listeners were saying yesterday that, yeah, but it's Hollywood here and Hollywood rules apply, which are different to pretty much anywhere else in the world. Would you agree with that? I know, yes. And it's funny, I, I read the comments on that myself where they're like, oh, you know, if, as long as he has love and he's got plenty of money, that's fine. And I just think that's so sad that, you know, I mean, that's your expectation of a daddy. Like, so long as, you know, wouldn't the world be lovely if that was all it took to be a parent? But there's far more to it than that, isn't there, really, if you're going to be a real hands-on dad? But at 83, can he be a hands-on dad? Well, see, there's my point. You know, just because you're biologically able to make the baby, are you able to actually mind the baby? Because uh, I'll tell you what, I'm uh, fortunate enough, I've been away for the night there and I've left my kids with uh, my mum and dad, who are a good decade younger than Mr. Pacino. And I know for a fact, was they love the bones of those kids, they're going to be absolutely delighted when I come back through the door and they get to hand them over because it's not easy. And the older you get, the harder it gets. Yeah, and when you say... The, the older you get, I know a friend of mine um, met beautiful woman, fell in love. She was considerably younger than he was, and they decided to have a little baby. And I think he was probably around about fifty years of age when they had the baby. And I congratulated the two of them, 
And I said to him, how are you getting on? And he said, between you and I, he said, I walked the kids when I was a young man up and down the landing in the dark of night. And he said, it didn't take much out of me. But he says, I feel like I've run a marathon every night for the last three weeks. Yeah, it is. He's 50. yeah, exactly. You imagine doing that. Yes, another three decades on. You know, and I just think, it's it's just kind of, um, I just think the expectations maybe need to be a bit higher than, oh, well, sure, if he's able to do it and he's got plenty of money, grand, go on. Because, do you know what I mean? I just think there's so much more to being a dad than that, or at least there should be. But again, I think there is this division where it's like, oh, you know, so long as daddy can buy the first pint or walk them down the aisle or mind them every so often, sure, that's all he needs to be doing. Whereas it's uh, quite a different story if you're a mom. Mm. And I know I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the, the film star, uh, Al Pacino, and, and also the director Scorsese and the likes of, of Robert De Niro. I mean, any any movie that I hear of that I haven't watched before, I intend <laughs> watching. And I think when The Irishman came out there a few years back, that for me was the culmination of classic Hollywood fame. But then <laughs> you, you think to yourself, Al Pacino's already, I think he's working on a new movie at the moment. He has one in the can and he has two more that he's actually reviewing in order to star in in years to come. So whether he's 83 or whether he's 53, he's not going to be there, is he? Well, that's it, yeah. But it's funny, I think even if you step away from Hollywood, the narrative is kind of the same. Now, obviously, there's a lot of dads, you know, everyday dads who do a lot. But it's funny, I would still find, you know, if my husband has the kids in the park, there'll be people who'll be like, oh, are you giving mommy a break? Uh, is she getting the morning off? Oh, he's awful good with them. And you know for a fact, if it's me out with the kids, nobody's telling me I'm awful good with them. You know, there's just <laughs> that. <laughs> and I am. Of <laughs> but, course. There's still there's still that as if, you know, the dad does it and he's going above and beyond, whereas it's just the, the baseline for, for the mums. I don't you've probably seen actually there was a comedian doing the rounds on social media there recently where he was saying the school had phoned uh, asking him what what bus um his his kid got on. He's like, <laughs> My God, you phoned the dad, there's the mum and the dad's number there and you thought the dad would know that and he's like, Oh, hang on, just tell me what school it is and I'll be there and like it's funny, but it's also kind of like funny because it's true. You're like oh dads just aren't expected to know that information like um i don't know the whatsapp groups i think are always you know a a real indicator i'm on one for my eldest son and i think there's 30 in the class and there is only one dad on that whatsapp group and that's unfortunately because the parents have split up you know it is it's just i think it's just indicative of how the kids stuff is still largely seen as mommy's work very much. Is that an Irish thing, do you think? Is it a, a European thing or is it a, a universal thing? Mm, I wonder, yeah. I do wonder, yes, is the yes, is the Irish mummy and, and, and how, how we raise our sons as well. Maybe, yes, is it how we contribute into the problem? Mm. Um, yeah, that'd be an interesting one to, to look at. I wonder what it's like, yes, in, in other places. I know certainly, yes, in um, continental Europe, I think there are, there would be more stay-at-home dads, I seem to remember. But uh, I don't know, yeah, I do wonder if it's just, yeah, the world over where it's still mummy who's uh, expected to, to carry the bulk of it. And you would have to ask yourself, Chrissy, what attracts this lady to Al Pacino? What does she find attractive in him? Because well, she, well she's <laughs> not poor. Or, or in, in fact, she, she's not just of average income type. She's quite a wealthy woman and she hangs out with the likes of Mick Jagger and Clint Eastwood, at least she used to. Um, yeah. What, what do you think attracts her to him? Or, uh, she, 
I am sure Al Pacino is an incredibly charismatic man. Yeah. I, I, I haven't had the good fortune of, of meeting him myself. I would love to, but I'm a big fan. So do you know what I mean? It's, it's easy to be cynical and you know, raise an eyebrow at it. Um, but, you know, who knows? She obviously felt that the connection was strong enough that she wanted to have a child with him. Mm. Uh, and she's, as I think you said earlier, she's she's 29, I believe. So, you know, she's there's no no geriatric pregnancy there for her. <laughs> it's great to chat to you this morning. Thank you for giving us your perspective on it and have a great weekend. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Chrissy Russell there from the Irish Independent writing on Al Pacino at 83. Um, and actually, he is, he, he's an extremely charismatic man because I, I, I've i watched interviews with him with uh, Jay Leno and I think Graham Norton actually did an interview with both himself and Al Pacino when they were doing The Irishman. But if you get a chance to see, I mentioned this yesterday, Heat uh, from 1995 is, is one of the top streaming movies on Netflix. Netflix have added it to their back catalogue now and that wonderful scene where he sits down at the restaurant with Robert De Niro you know. Robert De Niro is the bad guy Al Pacino is the you know hard done rough cut cop and he's coming after Pacino and he's basically after De Niro and he's basically saying to him Look, it's going to be like this, okay? I want to go home to my wife tonight. I don't know whether you have a wife, but I do. I don't earn as much as you do, but the money you earn is not legally earned, okay? But I am going to come after you. And when I come after you, I am going to take you down. Final words, boy. Now, um, lots of comments and reactions to the whole Philip Schofield story that is just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. And as I say, I would imagine that hearts are skipping a beat as uh, certain people wait to see what the Sunday newspapers in the UK hold this weekend because they, they carry a lot of clout. Here's an email from a listener this morning in relation to that. I think way too many people are far too unkind and judgmental. If both adults were consenting, then it's a decision made between two consenting adults and nothing to do with anyone else. I feel his wife and family would have a right to have opinions and feelings regarding this, but we are not in a position to be making judgments, in my opinion. I am not famous and am what would consider a nobody, but I know what it's like to be completely unfairly treated judged and bullied by people who don't have any reason to behave in that manner. It's extremely damaging and I understand the feelings that accompany it. No one needs that level of hate or judgment. In my situation, I did absolutely nothing at all but missed time from work for being unwell following a crash and I received a barrage of defamatory emails that were extremely unkind and untruthful. The damage ignorant people cause has no bounds and just should not be tolerated. We need to practice kindness and empathy. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96FM. 0833 96 96 96. That's our number for your texts and WhatsApps this morning. Now, in relation to the Philip Schofield BBC Scotland interview, um, just hearing now that a body language expert, I find these people fascinating, has reviewed the Schofield interview and pointed out some key points, including the point where Phil hinted that his career was over 
when talking about his television career in the past tense and his poor mental state. Uh, the body language expert said, Phil's body language in general throughout the interview is very sincere, very honest. He appears to have dropped the perfect this morning mask. His hand gestures are broad and varied, filled with emotion, and his full face, forehead, eyebrows, eyes and cheeks respond with feeling to every question and statement. That's from a body language expert who reviewed that BBC Scotland interview with Philip Schofield, which was conducted during the week. And just on a, a, a note in, the, in that, I'll just leave it at this. Um, I watched Eamon Holmes' interview uh, with Dan Hutton, uh, Dan Hutton on GB Radio. Uh, Dan, I think, formerly associated with a, a couple of newspapers in the UK, but um, it was an interesting interview, but, you know, I, I just, I kind of felt a bit disappointed in Eamon. It felt like as if he was sort of saying, you know, now I have an opportunity to to kind of say what I've always wanted to say about my former employees. As you know, he no longer presents the Friday morning and he hasn't been very well lately, but sometimes I think there are situations that, you know, when you diss the old bosses, it can sometimes come back to bite you. He's a very wealthy man and I wish him well and I hope he's feeling better. Now, uh, it's a big weekend and as uh, we were saying, there's lots going on, particularly uh, plenty of water sports and plenty of trips to the beach over the next few days. This woman is one of the top kayakers in the world and now she's putting her stamina and skill to the test and there's no doubt about that in a big, big fundraiser for a charity close to her heart and I know she's been working on this very, very hard lately and uh, she is Anna Iso Donovan. Good morning to you. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? Very well, thank you. Certainly not as fit as you are. (laughs) 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 But I get back there. Mind you, I've never kayaked in my life. It's one of the most thrilling sports, isn't it, in the world? It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So tell me, tell me about, you know, the stamina required and the effort that goes into just, you know, being someone who's totally consumed in this really high energy, high performance sport. Um, Yeah, so our sport kayaking obviously uses a lot of energy and power and stamina. Um, I guess it's something that we build up over time and the more you do it, the easier it gets. You know, it's just like when you walk for the first time until you and then suddenly you're running 5K without even realising it, you know, um, it all adds up. And where, where, do, you, where do you work when, when you're sort of preparing for a big event? Where, where are you based? Uh, right now I'm kind of based quite locally because um, all my energy is being put into the fundraiser. So I'm based now in West Cork at the moment preparing. And what is preparing like there in West Cork? Give, give, me, give us an idea of what, you know, a session would be per day. Um, in a typical day, um, I will head out onto the water. Um, I'll paddle for an hour, an hour and a half, uh, just getting my body to be back used into a boat. Um, if I'm training for like freestyle or whitewater, it'll be a bit different. We'll probably be traveling up the country, whereas at the moment it is just all flat water paddling, so it can be accessed anywhere. So I'm very fortunate down in West Cork. We have so many flat water areas like Loch Ine or the various beaches and stuff around. Oh, what, give us an idea of some of the beaches. Like as I was saying earlier to John Mathers from the, the, the RNLI, we've got some of the most beautiful beaches in the world here, haven't we? We do, we do. Um, so I'm very fortunate where I'm living that I'm only a stone throw away from Skull, Baltimore, Onahincha, Inchidani. Some of the places that people travel hours from Dublin to come down to visit, uh, it's just on my doorstep. 
and Inchidani, probably one of the most breathtaking beaches, like for its scope and its size and uh, like how broad it is and how far out you can walk during one of these low, low tides. When you have that beach to yourself at six o'clock in the morning, it must be exhilarating. It's incredible. Um, it's, it's, I always prefer it though when we have a group of friends and sometimes we'll say there's only three of us and we're just completely absorbed in the moment. You Sometimes you're lucky to get to see dolphins and whales and seals and it's just breathtaking. Nobody even knows that you're out there. It's just incredible. And I take it you're a first-class swimmer. I would be pretty good at swimming. I think you kind of have to be yeah. for like not being afraid to go into the water and like sometimes things happen and we end up coming out of our boats so being able to be competent in the water to uh, swim back into shore or to rescue our boats, I think it's important to be able to swim. And have you had any of those moments, those scary kind of moments? I think it happens to everybody who's learning to kayak and it gets um, less frequent the better a kayaker you become. But then the better you become when you do take what we call a swim, it does become even scarier because you're typically going down a waterfall or something like that. Um, But we do with the scenarios as they all come up. We are all trained in like swift water rescue, white water technicians. We all wear buoyancy aids, helmets. We all have a method of rescuing each other on the river. Everyone has each other's back. Um, So it's just one of these sports that there's so much teamwork involved and we are so prepared People don't always realise like how much stuff we actually carry, but every time we're on the water, we have ample safety equipment just in case. And if you're one of the top kayakers, I presume you can look forward to seeing some of the most beautiful places in the world when you travel. Absolutely. We get to travel so much as part of our sport. But to be honest, some of the most breathtaking places I've visited have been locally around West Cork. Just sea kayaking around the different cliffs and stuff around like the old head of Kinsale and things like that. Um, there's like hidden caves, hidden tunnels and, and stuff that you get to experience when you are sea kayaking where you wouldn't ever be able to go by, by foot, if you get me. And do you, ha- do you all hang around together? Is it a, a sort of a close-knit group of kayakers? I think everybody has their own group that they go out on the water with um, and then everyone kind of meets up at different events throughout the year. And is it a full-time job? Uh, well, there's no money in it, so I don't know if it can be classed as a job. <laughs> it's, a, it's a love, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a passion for sure. We all love the sport and we do anything to be able to do it every day. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was reading up a little on the, um, the big fundraiser that you're taking part in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So on June the 10th, uh, myself and 10 of my friends, so 11 of us in total, will be kayaking for 24 hours to raise funds for the RNLI. We will be starting from Phoenix Kayaking Club in Cork City and kayaking from 8 a.m. until 8 a.m. the following morning. We should have a combined total of 264 hours between us. Um, we've decided to do this challenge for the RNLI because we never know when we might need them. As a water sports enthusiast, we rely heavily on the, the efforts that the RNLI put in in any case of an emergency. So we're trying to raise as much money as we can while still like spreading awareness for water safety and like promoting people to get active in the outdoors as well. Um, so, so far we have raised 2,700 euro and we're hoping to keep those numbers climbing and climbing and see if we can make um, a massive difference to the Ornalai and all the efforts that they put in. Wow, that's wonderful. And tell me, when is it happening? 
So it's Saturday the 10th of June. Saturday week. 8 a.m. until Sunday the 11th of June, 8 a.m. Right, okay. Well, good luck to you. We'll, we'll see you at some point over that weekend anyway. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Annecy, it's lovely to talk to you and have a nice weekend, safe weekend, and best wishes to all of your colleagues as well. Perfect. Thank you very much, Gareth, and Thanks I'll talk so. to you soon. Take care. Bye. What a wonderful pastime. And I mean, when you're one of the top kayakers in the world, it's an amazing achievement. Now, just coming up to quarter to 12, uh, Cork musician Claire Sands is set to perform at Glastonbury Music Festival when the singer-songwriter will be on the acoustic stage this year on Saturday 24th. What an amazing moment that will be. And Claire is on the line right now. Hi, Claire. Hi Gareth, how's it going? Going well. Wow, I'd, I'd say like if you can sleep at night in the build-up to this, it, it, it's 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 staggering. I remember I remember meeting um, Mike Leavers, who was the original man who actually got together the whole idea for Glastonbury many many years back. And I remember he was looking for planning permission for the acoustic stage, but they wouldn't give him any planning permission, the local council, and they said no, 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 no permission, you know, no insurance, whatever. Uh, so he decided what he would do is that he would he would actually apply for planning permission to build a barn on his farm in the shape of a pyramid, and he automatically got planning permission for it, and that became the acoustic stage. I think it's a great story. That's amazing. Yeah. Like he sounds like a total genius, and just the ethos behind the the whole festival is incredible. Yeah, do you know? I think his daughter is actually running the festival pretty much from now. He's, um, I think he's still with us. I would imagine he is, but a real genius. And as you say, he never ever gave up. He would just keep knocking until they eventually said yes to him. How do you feel about taking to the stage? Oh, I feel really honoured and privileged, and um, to be honest, Gareth, and I'm just delighted that it's the music that I've been playing since I was two or three years old like sort of traditional music mixed with folk and that that, that is, I suppose, getting a voice and, and a stage to, to be heard on. And yeah, as the first woman from Cork to be playing the festival, yeah, it's a real honour and just to be in the steps of such giants, like I think Richard Thompson is on on the same day as myself and there's a really, really strong Irish contingent going over as well. So I'm really, really excited for it. I'm, I'm doing plenty of sea swimming here as I think to the, the girl on the floor and I'm, I'm just sort of doing a kilometre swim off the coast of County Antrim to, to remain calm and keep the body in shape for it for sure wow. but yeah just yeah. it's going to be brilliant I can't wait and I know Mary Coughlin and Brian Kennedy are going to be performing on the acoustic stage too isn't that so? Yeah there's there's quite a contingent I think the Mary Wallopers are there as well and yeah. Steve Earle and Sharon Shannon and a few others so just people I've admired for my whole life and uh yeah, I, ju- I just think it's going to be a fantastic weekend. Like the honour of, of playing last year with the Hot House Flowers, um, I'm just back off at the mo- a month tour with them around the UK and Scotland and Wales. And it was a great schooling for me, you know, to be playing with these gentle giants in front of thousands of people. And because it's quite overwhelming at the same time, like it's like walking into the, I don't know, the Gladiators Auditorium when you're just this, this young one from Cork playing the fiddle. But honestly, it was brilliant. And I can't wait to go back in my own right and just to have people singing and dancing and moving and and being together, you know, hopefully in a bit of sunshine and not the muck that it usually gets. Look, there'll be no batter either. Well, you yeah, I remember Johnny Walker, um, who is also a very well-known DJ on the BBC. Johnny used to love going to um, 
to Glastonbury, but I think Johnny's 78 now. He still does regular radio work. But he said recently on a radio show, he said, nah, nah, he says, the muck and the tents and cooking food, he says, that's that's history for me now, you know. But you, yeah. were, you were there last year to support the Hothouse Flowers. Yeah, I was playing with them on electric violin, so we were tearing it up uh, on the Saturday evening, yeah. And, you know, at the back, of, uh, from the back of that, I've just done a tour with them as I sit around the UK and Scotland, you know, 22, 23 dates. So we've had an absolutely fantastic time going around in a big uh, sleeper bus. And I think the Cork accent and uh, was definitely needed amongst all the dubs, I must say. <laughs> but uh, we had a great time. Uh, we had a great time. And uh, yeah, just, as I said, great to go back in my own right. And we'll get the ferry over, you know, pack up the, the van and away we go. And uh, yeah, I think there'll be great spirit and energy there. And especially the acoustic stage always has that Irish contingent. So people tend to stay together and support each other. And that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Just, I mean, you stood on it, you played on it. For for those of us who, who have never seen the acoustic stage, it's, it's, it's so unique, isn't it? What is it like to look down at the crowd? It's mad, yeah, it's mad. It's it's hard to see them a lot of the time because there's so many lights, but it's like a massive marquee. It's similar to the marquee in Cork and uh, just a big open style Moulin Rouge tent and it's just, it's a very, very big stage, you know. Um, but it just comes back to basics as well and you're there looking at your instrument and playing this instrument that you've played for 25 years and it it just it, there's a great calmness as well you know that comes over you and I, I was ex- really really calm you know I, I definitely before going on had a few jitters but the minute I started I was like I've been playing this instrument since I was, since I was three years old and coming from six or seven generations of, of fiddlers and I said I was like I got this you know it's it's going to be fine and um, yeah feeling positive about it as well and there's a, a, a cork a few cork contingent coming over. Um, it, with with me and my team as well so it's great to just be bringing people over that I know and I trust and have been working with for so long so I yeah I'm, I'm feeling good about it anyway wow. feeling good about it in the sun <laughs> I, can today. I can tell take me back like when you say three that's astonishing I, I started lear- learning the piano I think when I was about seven but unfortunately I, I gave it up and I wish I hadn't like when 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 you're three years of age are you aware of what you're you're holding and what you're playing? I, I think when you come from maybe six or seven generations um, of fiddlers, there's something very strange happens in your body. Like you feel it in your blood and in your bones. And yeah. I remember getting this tiny little fiddle. I, I could barely put my hand around it, but I was definitely very conscious. And then just going to all the music festivals with my parents, you know, up to Willie Clancy Week and, and Doolin and all of these festivals and just being immersed in the music and our house in Cork, like I grew up just outside Blarney in Whitechurch and we we just had an open door all the time and it was sessions every weekend and just met so many people. So definitely was in it was in the body, you know. Um, and it's just, it's let me travel the whole world. Like the last six months I've been as far as Africa to all around Germany, Switzerland, the UK, back and forth to the States twice. And it's just playing this instrument and speaking and singing in the language that I'm comfortable in. And yeah. um, it's just great to, to be able to show all these audiences traditional music and folk music, you know, in a different way and in a different light. And it's it's definitely seems like it's the time for that and the revival is here. And I've been waiting so three years old for it, so I'm delighted <laughs> that Glastonbury is like, oh, yeah, Jesus, traditional music is sort of cool, actually. You're taking, you're <laughs> taking your place at last. Like, when you think of the, the lineage of the Sands family musically, when did you, when did it dawn on you that you, like, you... 
you were, as it were, sort of taking the cope and putting it around you and you were wearing the cloak and you were taking the family into a whole new generation? I think, um, Gareth, it's only in the last maybe two or three years that I had the real confidence and push to do that and just surrounded by people that believed in me as well. And, you know, I've always balanced out the, the performing with, you know, working, doing sort of music therapy and community work up in the cabin studio in Nakahini and up in the co-foundation in Montanati and loads of different work like that has, has aided and fueled it as well. And that work is just as important to me as playing Glastonbury or whatever. It's all keeps you grounded and back to basics in the community but I definitely in the last few years after I suppose the pandemic and having a wee bit of time to think I said yeah actually I think I can do this you know so yeah it's look it's great um, mm. to be playing the festival and to be flying the flag like for, for I suppose for Cork and for Ireland in general Well I've no doubt Seamus Begley will wherever he is looking down on us today he'll be shouting out for you over the next few weeks because I know it's going to be a very <laughs> I hope busy. so Yeah I was so sad to hear of um of his passing in January, he, yeah. was, he was a good old friend. He really he was a wonderful character, wonderful yeah. character. But t- yeah. you're, you're also moving on. You're playing the headline set on the legendary Somerset Festival's acoustic stage, aren't you? Um, as far as I know, it's just the, the big acoustic stage um, on Glastonbury on the Saturday morning. Yeah. yeah. So about I think we're opening that. Um, as far as I know, anyway, as I said, I'm just the back off uh, off the back of another tour, so I'm I'm getting back slowly but surely. But yeah, it'll be the Saturday morning that I'm opening the the acoustic stage in Glastonbury. So yeah, it should be should be a bit of crack. Anyway. Great thing is that they're all sleeping there overnight, so they'll be there. It doesn't matter what time you're on stage, they'll all be there for you. So that's one of the great things about Glastonbury. Yeah, yeah, I think people start to arrive from the Wednesday, you know, from what I've heard, and it's actually it's a lot of the morning gigs that are really really nice and intimate and. Yeah that people are, I suppose, that are really there with you. And yeah, there's a spill from everyone from the night before that's still awake, you know. But what I really enjoyed about last year as well was all the kids. Like, there was thousands upon thousands of of children and all the kids' areas that they've built. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory style um, tents. And there's everything that you can imagine for kids from making musical instruments to jumping into a million and one down the castle so it's always I'm hoping that all the kids will be there because they're brutally honest with you and they're always up for dancing and for singing and and so I'm hoping that they'll be definitely driving the stage forward that morning (laughs) Claire great to chat to you have a great weekend and looking forward to Glastonbury and hopefully we'll get weather there for you like as good as it is here at home this weekend take care Uh, thanks very much thanks Claire Sands there Uh, just looking at the lineup, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, Paul Carrick, one of my favourites, two of my favourites.